Good morning once again. If I may uh, put, you know, draw your attention again to the uh, worship guide, I hope that you look at that, read it, use it, fill out the, uh, the play, uh, prayer list that is right here, uh, and also that you will uh, use some of that for some of your sermon notes. And right below that, we have a text that kind of spells out uh, some of the things that are going on here, right? We gather to worship. Because we believe the faith of our hearts must find expression through the confession of our mouth. The Lord who calls us together to hear our confession is also the God who sends us out to the world to share the life that he has given us. And so I want you to kind of think of that even as we contemplate a piece of scripture today that comes from a book uh, that is often called uh, the Book of the Twelve or the Book of the Minor Prophets in the in the uh, in the Old uh, Testament or what the Jews would call in the Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. That was one scroll or one book. So you had the four major prophets, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. And then you had the 12 smaller prophets, as we call them, because they're shorter, not because they're less important, uh, as, as uh, all written in, in one book or, or in, on one scroll. And that's kind of uh, the background that you see that. So the message of those uh, were kind of the same in, in many ways, expressed differently, uh, a little bit on different times, but, but still the message is clear. It's about repentance, right? The focus is on God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness, God's covenant uh, with his people, and then on the coming of the Messiah, in other words, on God's promises. And it is in that light that we'll read also this text today. Again, as a reminder, we're in this, this larger kind of uh, series, if you will, on life together. You'll see it on our walls. You'll see the emphasis on discipleship and on what we do together. And right now, we're going to focus on a text that's, that focuses in somewhat on what faithfulness truly means also when it comes to giving. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, the last, the very last book of, of what we call the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, uh, will be the book of Malachi. I'm going to read to you, uh, what is often considered the fifth, uh, kind of argument, if you will, a disputation of that book. There are six of them, six arguments for what I just mentioned that these are about. And here's the fifth that Malachi has. And it begins in verse six. If you follow along. For, or because, as it says in this translation, I, the Lord, have not changed. You, the descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. And let me just comment here that this is a little bit of a difficult thing. The way it works in Hebrew is straight up two parallel sentences. The first sentence says, I, the Lord, have not changed. The second is, but you, the sons of Jacob, you have not changed either. You have not ceased to be the sons of Jacob. That's a literal translation. That means you are still deceiving like Jacob was considered to be deceiving 
Are you hearing this? So that's that kind of the background. And so that, that's when we read here. So since the days of your father, you have turned from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the, uh, and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse. Yet, you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not uh, ruin the produce of your land and your wine in your fields and will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is indeed a kind of a special text. And I have to admit, it's a bit rough on the edges, is it not? It just kind of is. And and we read that. We read it a little bit with with fear and trembling. But but it is an important kind of text that we cannot just kind of skate over as if, if it was not part of Holy Scripture. We like to think of ourselves as a church, that we are a church on a mission and a special kind of mission, that is God's mission. And as a part of that, we rejoice to to meet new people, to to welcome new people who come to our doors, but also to forward our mission outside of this wonderful facility as we reach out to meet new people all around this area and even from here out into this whole uh, state and nation and even world. So think about this for just a minute. God has given us incredible opportunity. I, mean, I mentioned this before. I think it's, it's more than a year ago since I mentioned it the first time, maybe even a year and a half, when I think, imagine this, new church plants. Most of you have heard of that, are springing up everywhere, right? Small groups of people are, are coming together to try to be faithful to God's call and do something. If we imagine this here, what church plant would you ever notice that had a location like ours? Right? Not on some kind of little apartment on the third floor someplace in some building no one has ever heard of. Right here on this corner with this majestic facility, with this majestic kind of group of people for you, with the kind of budget that is possible to have in this place. We are here right now. Forget all the things that, that could have been, should have been. We are here now. And God is calling us. To be his messengers. Now, from here to this area and around. That's kind of the background for this. And then we read a text like this. And we see that commitment and, and, and surrender and blessing are kind of 
inextricably bound together in the strongest way. It is about Jesus. And there's something here about what it means to call him Lord. We were so good at that right at the beginning. But, but you know, what does it mean to call him Lord in the everyday? That Jesus is the one that we follow, that we submit to him. To call him Lord means that we are not. means that when he says, we say, yes, sir. That's kind of where that goes. And so when you look at it right here, you cannot escape the things. When, when, when Jesus says that my lordship covers all of life, all of things, not just some things, all things should shape our relationship to Christ. To come to faith in Jesus, to call him Lord, means exactly that, that everything else Everything falls under that umbrella. And so that is important to kind of recognize, even as we come to this text, that it is not just a religious matter. It's not just a spiritual matter, as if we could kind of section that part of our lives off. It is a life matter. God has blessed us, and now our surrender to him is to be put to the test. And so as the last couple of Sundays, and if you're not able to be here to hear that, listen, you know, you can find these things on YouTube, on our website, and and other places. Go back and listen to what God has been speaking to his church on these matters here. So what we see is that there's a special emphasis here on the financial kind of submission to God's word. Is there a connection between our financial reality and God's blessings, this text says so. All the scripture, in fact, will highlight that very thing, that God has moored together our surrender to him to the blessings that he pours our way. So one of the most prominent emphases you'll see throughout Scripture, really, uh, is one of the, is the truth that, that human beings always will come to stand before God and to give an account of our lives. This, this emphasis runs through all of Scripture. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's certainly emphasis on the prophets, and you'll see that again and again. And so when you look here... That becomes an important issue because you see that whether you are self-sufficient or you are completely God-dependent or you are someplace in between, one day you will come to stand before God to give an account for the life that was yours. And so we're looking at that. Not as anything scary, but we're simply looking at at that as as a reality of, of how things are put Together. We came to this world with nothing, we were naked as could be, and we'll leave this world without being able to bring, take anything with us from here. And so to give is a practical reality. It's a practical reality that God himself has put into his word and into his calling to kind of check on our, on our commitment, if you will, to Christ. 
Once said at one time, to give is just as an important uh, exercise for the spiritual life as to witness, as to pray, as to read the scriptures, and so on. Because to give is an expression of worship. It is an, a way of telling God that I understand that everything I'm about depends on your grace and your goodness. Even my life and my livelihood. And that's where we get to the point of this text, friends, when you look at it. God's grace gift, or gift of grace, if you will, is eternal life. But it is our commitment to that, our surrender to that reality that, that, that brings the blessings of this life into focus and it makes them flourish in ways that cannot happen any other way. This is not to say that, well, I can then kind of earn God's blessings. No, it could not be further from the truth than that. God has already, in his overwhelming grace, given us way more than we deserve. There's nothing that we can do to deserve his grace. And yet, there's still in Scripture a clear connection between our sum- surrender, our submission to God, and his activity and blessings in our lives. That is why, friends, it is possible to call a sermon like I've done here where we connect in one and the same sentence the word giving and blessing. So... Back to the text. If you notice here, the central piece of this text is verse 7, where God says, Return to me, and I will return to you. And notice that this is first person. God speaks directly. If there is any place in Scripture where there's a tight connection here between our lives and and God's blessing. This is the point right here, and the language is rough, and I admit it. It's hard to read that. I didn't write it, right? But it's hard. How do we rob you by holding back my tithe? This is a principle that is so strong in Scripture that, that it runs from the beginning to the end, and all the way through church history, that has been The emphasis that the tithing belongs to the Lord. You know, if you look in the creation order, right? Now, how did God create? He built into the very order of creation itself a day to be called holy. It's it's not an add-on later on. It is built into the creation order that I, I want you to take the seventh day and keep it holy. That is, for my purposes. And then, on the other side, you have this whole question about the tithe also built in from the beginning. It is not something that is added on later on, as I said. Even Abraham, the father of faith, from the very beginning, it says about him that he gave a tithe to God of everything. Hundreds and hundreds of years before there were any laws and, and any kind of rules and regulations that told people to do so. The Lord's day and the Lord's tithe are connected. And God has bound his blessing to the surrender 
to truth, to the truth of these two things. I'm in the midst of writing commentary right now. A publisher asked me to write a commentary on, on the Sermon on the Mount. Somewhat of a bigger undertaking, but, but, but think of it this way. Jesus connects all kinds of things. In Matthew 5 to 7, for those of you who are not familiar with that, it's the key central point of Jesus' teaching. If anything exemplifies or summarizes what Jesus taught, the Sermon on the Mount is it. And Jesus has all kinds of, of, of kind of connections that he makes. He said, you know, you heard it said, like, but I'm telling you, do this and these things will follow. This will be the result. How do you know? Test it out. It's the only way to know the value of the truth of what Jesus is saying. And when you do, you'll find out that he truly is the Lord worthy to follow. Even when we think this is tough. It is a lot like some of you old enough to remember a, a gospel singer called, called Andrew Crouch, right? As he was singing, you don't know what you're missing until you met the Lord. So look at this text again, mighty as it is, spelling out blessings and what God will do when we return. To him in a strong way. Notice here his, the emphasis that is on, on spiritual restoration, if you will, or even revival. You know, I mentioned that, that specific kind of uh, translation uh, in, in, the, in the original text here, how, how that just sets up the distinction. I'm God. I don't change. You can always trust me. I am always faithful. That is also why you should not continue to be sons of Jacob. And it's also why, as you have translated it here, a little bit tendentiously, why I have kept you as my people. You should turn to me and I will turn to you, says the Lord. There's, there's no replacement, if you will, for that. There's no substitution for true conversion and surrender. Nations and churches and individuals, when they replace what is clearly God's word and God's teaching with something that they feel, well, I don't need that. There's nothing for God to do other than call us back. And when we do, what heaven requires is that we look for him for this restoration of this life. Turn to me and I will turn to you. I think we've become so accustomed, friends, become so accustomed to talking about conversion as just this moment when we first come to faith. Yeah, I, I got saved. 
And that's kind of it. And so because that's it, you know, there, there's nothing more to say about conversion. We become deaf to the constant and ongoing call in Scripture to, to that becoming the point of life, not just a point of start. So when we take our allegiance to God's word in our own hand and we don't quite understand what is going on and why the blessings are missing, that is what this text, it spells out for us. It's about habits of life that are changed. Really, the word conversion means that, that there is a real change in our understanding so that that leads to a change even in our heart and our lives. Just, just think about it. As you're thinking is transformed, as your life is transformed, as your actions are transformed, everything will change. It is, as we say sometimes, like you're just kind of turning around and you heal and just think differently. That's exactly what we see in so many places. You know, sin, we don't use that word much anymore, but the word sin is not just about giving oneself to what is not right and what is not righteous. Sin is at its core a separation from God, a distancing in our closeness with God. And that's why he's calling us here to return to me and I will return to you. The New Testament puts it like this. If we confess our distance from God or our sins, as we say, he will be faithful and righteous and forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all the things that separate us from him that is unrighteousness. God has moored together these things. Some of you will remember, if you don't, just look it up. It's in Luke chapter 10, right before uh, the uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's introduced like this. A, a righteous kind of a scribe comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, what do you know? And he said, well, I know that I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength. And I need to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus answers, and just listen to this. Jesus answers tersely, precisely, concretely. Do this, and you will live. That's it. Do this, and you will live. That, friends, is exactly what's going on here, also in this text. Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments in those two kind of uh, sentences. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's the first four of the Ten Commandments, if you will. And then, and your neighbor as yourself, that's the last four of the Ten Commandments. Just think of it. Abe, we would hear Jesus say, do this. Just do this and you shall live. The language here as we move forward, just look back at the text and look at verse 9. I admitted that earlier. It's a bit rough. 
It can be hard to, to read even, right? Well, look at here when he says, here you are, look here, you are suffering under a curse. You know, at the time when, when he wrote, uh, Malachi was, was, uh, speaking to the situation that was in Israel. They had come back from, from Babylon about a hundred years earlier. They had rebuilt the temple, but things were not going as they were supposed to do. People were not faithful as they were supposed to do. Things were falling apart. Israel was supposed to be salt and light to all the nations. People were supposed to look to Israel to see that's how you live in the presence of God. Instead, they just looked that's something they didn't know. What kind of people are that? They are not even worth the little place they had to live on. There's nothing special about that people. And so they were confused. Why the blessing's not flowing our way? And God says, because you're robbing me. It's tough. You're holding for yourself what is really mine. You should bring the tithe. To the house and check to see if I will not pour out my blessings upon you. If I will not open up the floodgates of heaven. Test it out, he says. My blessings will come to flow as you trust in me. Even with your finances. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, he doesn't know my finances. There's no way. Where in the world would I find 10%? He must have lost his mind. I'm not saying this. I'm reading this, right? From the good book. So, here it is. The question is not how could we ever possibly afford it. The real question is how could we find a way to live in, in the kind of joy and satisfaction that is promised, uh, blessings from, from God Without God's blessing flowing our way. I think there's something here when this turn is to straightforward first person I. The real question really is not about what you can afford, but about God's blessings. And think about this. Is that not exactly what happened at the outpouring of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost? What started the church in the first place? We, we have for years and years in the Christian church, certainly in the West, separated the spiritual from the practical as if they were two different spheres that did not need to touch each other. But, but that doesn't work that way, God is saying. God would look at us if we say he is Lord only with words from our mouth rather than as a practical consequence to the way we orchestrate everything in our lives, including our financial thinking. So here it is. What God seems to be saying is that if you trust me and and live your life as I've called you to live your life. And prioritize the way I've, I've called you to prioritize my life. Notice if I will not pour out my blessing. And as you receive more blessing, you'll be able to be a greater blessing for others. And, and, and as, as you are that, you'll find more blessing coming your way. It's get, like getting into this great kind of circle of goodness, if you will.
The promises here are extraordinary. I had to kind of read that a few extra times to say, what are these promises? They, they are that I will open the floodgates of heaven. Was that not exactly what happened on the day of, of Pentecost when God pulled the curtain aside and poured out his spirit in extraordinary measures and blessing continued to flow to that early church? Or revivals, if you want to use words like that, reawakening of the spirit, reawakening of, of people's sensitivity toward God suddenly became extraordinary and people turned to him in numbers that is un, almost uncountable. The gates, the floodgates of heaven were open. There was an old song that was sung when I was just a boy. I don't know if anyone knows it anymore. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessings we need, yes? Mercy drops are falling, yes? Rounders are falling. But for showers of blessing, we plead. That's really what we, we see here. Those are the kind of words. This is the language that is here. Let me round up by saying this. The world today doesn't think much of the church. Generally speaking, that's a true statement. The general person on the street, she or he will, will not think another th- thought really about the church. It is, is irrelevant. The, the business person think of the church as ineffective. The journalist uh, think of the church as, as insignificant, as nothing to write about really here. The, the intellectuals uh, think of this as, as injudicious, as confusing. But what if the floodgates of heaven were open? If a reinvigoration of of the presence of God became a reality and, and this massive place will not be filled one time on Sunday, but two times, or not only two times, but three times, maybe not even three times, but four times, every single weekend, five times, six times. Imagine what would happen. Then what happens? The average Joe, if you will, on the street, or the average Jill uh, on the street will suddenly be interested and say, hey, maybe it's not as irrelevant as I thought. Maybe the businessmen will, will, will perk up and pay attention. The, the journalists will find the big letters out. The, the, the intellectuals will find other words to describe the church. Something is, is going on. Just imagine. Just imagine. And you're thinking, I don't know about this. Read verse 12, the last word we read. Then, that is, if you've done that, as, as God said, then all the nations will consider you fortunate, and you will be a delightful place, says the Lord. They will all pay attention. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Friends, I'm going to ask you to stand. There's going to be some that needs to come here and just surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Some of you for the first time, maybe. 
There's going to be some that need to rededicate their lives to the Lordship of Christ in a new way. There's some that want further conversation. We're going to have people here that can do that. There are some that need to kind of find a QR code or push pay or other place they can pay. We'll have ushers also at the exits. If you say, the Lord spoke to me, I need to surrender in a new way also to the issue of giving. These are realities, friends. I didn't make up that text. I couldn't have if I wanted to. This comes straight from the book. And I trust I haven't said a single thing that was not there. So if God speaks to you, even if he says, I need you to be part of this community who desires to become that kind of people where the floodgates of heaven are open. Because we want to see what God can do from here through us into this community, even among us, those of us who are already here. Friends, there's it's time. It really is time for the average Joe no longer to be able to say, I don't know, <laughs> seems irrelevant to me. Father, would you bless us as we gather here? Talk to us with such power that we cannot resist. When this rationality and, and our thoughts just turn your word into something that, that does not move us in the depths of our being. Will you shut that down and bring the voice of your spirit in the strongest way? Lord, this is your church. These people who are here, those who follow along wherever they are, from some place that is not here, but they are following and worshiping with us. Speak to us, Lord. Even if it's during the week and you just put it on someone's heart, I got to write a check and, and come down to church just to express worship. That I understand it includes all of my life. Thank you, Lord, for listening. Even now. And for moving us. Most of all, to listen to us, that we will cry out, that we may hear your voice above our own. We want to return and see your hand. Amen, Lord. Amen.